If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we will read from John chapter 5. We'll read from verses 16 through verse 30. It's good to be here with you all, church family. Today we read John chapter 5, and we see the Jews get all bent out of shape. They get extremely angry. But what I want you to look for, and really what we will talk about today, is what is the root cause of their anger. All right. Notice verse 16 of chapter 5. For this reason, for the reason that Jesus broke their Sabbath rules, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but he answered them saying, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, they grew in their anger. Therefore the Jews were seeking all the more, not just to persecute him, but to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Therefore Jesus answered and said to him, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in a like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sends me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son to the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Amen. Allow me to ask you the question, who is on the throne of your life? Perhaps that is the most important question that you could possibly answer. Who is on the throne of your life? Whose authority do we live under day by day? Is it yours or is it Christ? We as Christians say that we love truth, but sometimes this is not the truth. We say that we love truth, but sometimes this is not the truth. Sometimes we really don't want to know the truth. We don't really want to know the truth about what we eat. We don't really want to know the truth about hot dogs. Okay, please don't tell me. We don't want to know the truth about what's in McDonald's chicken nuggets or McDonald's period. I used to work in a restaurant here in town, and you did not want to know the truth about how that kitchen looked. It was gross. I'll say it that way. 
We don't really want to know the truth about things we touch. What germs are on that doorknob that we just touched? Or when the last time somebody washed their hands? We don't really want to know the truth about our finances. We don't really want to know what, how high our interest rate is on our credit card, how much we spend each month, or maybe how much money we have in the bank. We don't really want to know the truth about our waistline or hairline. We say we love truth, but sometimes this is not the truth. This is true in our personal life, but also in our spiritual life. I mean, think about the Christian life for just a second. We say as Christians that we love truth, but sometimes this is not so. We say that we love the truth of the Bible, and I hope we do, but we really love certain truths of the Bible and not other truths. We love the truth of Romans chapter 8, right? But we really don't love the truth of Romans chapter 13 about submitting to our governing authorities. We love the idea that God will not give us more than we can handle, which is not in the Bible, by the way. And then we glaze over the truth that we as Christians are called to suffer. We love the idea of the gospel as a gift of God's grace and His love, but we really don't like the change that it entails in our personal lives. We love to think about the grace of God and not the justice of God. We love to think about Jesus as the Savior of the world and not as Lord of my life. We love to think of Jesus as the Messiah and not as the judge and Lord and master of my life. This struggle, this tension between knowing truth and not, knowing, not wanting to know some truth is the very tension or struggle that I see in John chapter 5. Because the Jews, in John chapter 5, they say they love the truth, but they really only like the truth that they prioritize. They really like the truth that they like, but not really seeing Jesus for who He really is. Because if they saw Jesus, if they were able to look past their preferences and their rules and, and what they like, if they really looked past it, they would not see Jesus as just some guy who's causing problems, but they would see Him as Lord. They would see Him as King, and they would fall on their face in worship. This is the struggle that we see today. So if you have your Bible, go to John chapter 5. And today we see Jesus' authority to sit on the throne of all kingdoms and dominions and to sit on the throne of our lives. If you were here last week, then you probably know this passage today is really part two of the story from last week. In the beginning of John chapter 5, what did we see? We saw an ill man, that Jesus comes into the pool of Bethesda, I think I said it wrong last week, but he comes into the pool of Bethesda on his way probably to the Passover feast, and then what does he see at the pool? He sees a, a, a sea of ocean of sick and lame and ill and withered people. He sees people everywhere. It says in the original language, it's a great multitude, and there are five patios where filled with sick and dying people, and then what does he really see? He looks past all of the chaos, all of the sick people, and he sees one man that has been lying beside the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, sitting there, 
hopeless, starving for that one time that somebody could put him in the pool. But then Jesus sees this man, he sees his hopelessness, and what does he say to him? He says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And how do the Jews respond? <laughs> and not the way that we would probably want them to respond, but what do they do? They badger the poor guy who was healed. That this man was sitting beside the pool for 38 years and they're angry at this man for breaking their Sabbath rules. But then they find out the perpetrator of the miracle. They find out this man named Jesus is the one that healed him. And then they set their sights on Jesus. And then we see the trouble persist. We see the trouble grow from verses 16 through 18. And then we see the truth of who Jesus truly is in verses 19 through 30. So if you have your Bible, notice verse 16 of chapter 5. For this reason, because of verses 1 through 15, for this reason the Jews were persecuting, were persecuting there is an imperfect Greek tense showing continually action in the past. So they are continually plotting how to pursue and persecute Jesus. Because, why? Because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Now what is the trouble, or what is the root problem that they have here? In my opinion, there's two problems. One is on the surface, and then one is much deeper rooted. The surface problem is quite evident. It is that Jesus broke their Sabbath rules. That in order to feel righteous before God, that they have erected, in a sense, a fortress of self-righteous laws and rules on the Sabbath. They have made up at least 39 additional laws to abide by the Sabbath. And then they are mad when Jesus breaks those rules. They are so consumed with their self-righteousness, their self-righteous rules and preferences, that they fail to rejoice, they fail to participate in the work of God. I mean, just imagine being that man who's been sitting beside the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. For the first time in 38 years, he is finally healed. And all of his countrymen, all they can talk about is just beating down this man who has had probably experienced the greatest joy of his entire life. My first point today is to overcome blinding self-righteousness. To overcome blinding self-righteousness. Because friends, if we aren't careful, we can be just like these Jews. That they are so consumed with their preferences, so consumed with their rules, so consumed with their own bias that they fail to participate in the very work of God. They fail to rejoice in something that is miraculous that has happened to this man for the first time in 38 years. They fail to rejoice in the hope that this man has experienced in the midst of his hopelessness. They fail to see and to participate in the work of God. Let us not... Be like the crowds, that we are so consumed with ourselves, so consumed with what we want, what we think we should see, that we fail to see and participate in the work of God. But this is just the surface. I think there are really two problems going on. Here in verse 16, we see the surface issue, but really, there's a deeper problem. Notice verse 17 and 18. And Jesus answered them, saying, 
My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Excuse me. For this reason, therefore, the Jews elevate. They go from persecuting Jesus in verse 16 and verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Anybody that says in the world that Jesus never claimed to be God is foolhardy. They have never read John chapter 5. So we see the surface issue that their, their Sabbath rules were broken, but really what's the deeper issue here? In my opinion, the, really the deeper issue is that they fail to recognize Jesus' authority. They fail to recognize that this Jesus guy is not just some teacher, he's not just some man, but they fail to see his authority over all. That is why they get all bent out of shape. They basically say, who are you, Jesus, to not only break our rules, but to claim that you are equal to God. They fail to recognize Jesus' authority in their own life. They are... They're so blinded by their preferences, their self-righteous rules and regulations, that not only do they get bent out of shape, but they fail to see Jesus as God. Who is on the throne of your life? Whose authority do you live under? Perhaps that is the most important question of the Christian life. My second point today is to overcome blinding self-righteousness and to recognize Jesus' authority. It's easy in life to get comfortable. It's easy in life to get comfortable in our own spiritual walk with the Lord. And we find comfort oftentimes hiding behind our self-made, self-righteous rules that we have erected. And we all have them. It's not just some people. It's all Christians struggle with not erecting walls of self-righteousness that we peer over and that we judge other Christians by. We say, well, these are my rules. Why don't you follow them? And then we persecute those that do not align with our values that we have made up in a sense. But really, what's the root issue when we do that? The root issue is that we are failing to see the authority of Jesus Christ, who is on the throne of your life, self or Savior. So we see their surface issue, and and then we see the deeper issue. The surface issue is that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath rules, but really deeper down, they really don't trust the authority of Jesus Christ. Because let's just put it in perspective real quick. If if they really thought that Jesus was God, how how would they treat him? They would not persecute him, they would not kill him, but they would probably fall on their face in worship. But they fail. But then notice... Where Jesus' authority comes from, if you see in verse 19 through 30 and even beyond verse 30 itself, Jesus talks about where his authority comes from. But then in verses 19 through 30 as well, he shows or proves that his authority is from the Father. Notice verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in a like manner. What is the truth? That Jesus' authority is from the Father himself. That Jesus is not just there breaking Sabbath rules for no good reason, but that his authority to break those rules is because of the Father. But, But... 
one of, the, one of the things I love about this passage is that Jesus does not just say, oh, my authority is from the Father. But then what does he do in verses 19 to 30? He seeks out to prove that his authority is from God the Father. And he proves it in three main ways. Notice proof number one in verses 20 through 24. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to those whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What is Jesus' authority to break the Sabbath? His authority comes from the Father and is seen in his sameness. His sameness. If you have your notes, the first proof or proof number one of Jesus' authority is him, his sameness. Catch what he's doing here, that Jesus claims to be equal to God the Father. In verse 18, it is very clear, because they probably try to pick up stones and attack and kill Jesus right then and there. But then they set their mind to also plot against him himself. So he claims to be equal to God in verse 18, but then he proves that he is equal to God because of his sameness with the Father. If you notice... In the text, verses 19 to 24 is really one central unit. That is one piece of this passage, one pericope, if you will. And what I see in verse 19, verse 19 is the header statement, is the declarative statement, which is then explained by verses 20 through 24. So verse 19, Jesus follows the Father... Indeed, in verse 20, in raising the dead, in verse 21, in judgment, in verse 22, and in honor, in verse 23. I think we fail. We read, we can't help it. Let's just say it this way. We can't help but see and read and understand the Bible, but through a 21st century American lens that many of us do not see the controversy of this passage because we are so familiar with Jesus claiming himself to be fully God and fully man that it kind of has lost its luster. But just just for a second, put on the shoes of the Jews. Put on the shoes of the Jews in the first century 2,000 years ago because here is this man named Jesus. That is actually a pretty common name in Israel. It's actually the, the word Joshua, but transliterated. I won't talk about how that worked. But it's really the name Joshua. So the, here's this man named Joshua, or Jesus. That's a pretty common name. And all of a sudden, this guy named Jesus is claiming himself to not only be equal to God, but that him and the Father are of the same importance, that he follows the Father. I think that the, the shock value of his claim there is we cannot truly grasp. Imagine with me, I, I don't even know this does it justice, imagine if somebody walked into the sanctuary here today and claimed to be God. You would probably think he was a madman, right? And you would probably, hopefully, pick up at least a hymnal and throw it at him. The Jews must be completely shocked. No wonder they tried to persecute Jesus. No wonder they tried to kill him. But 
If the Jews recognized Jesus' ministry, if they would just see the healed, ill men that had been sitting there hopeless for 38 years, that they would have seen the truth, that Jesus' claims are true, that He is equal to God, that His Father, that He follows the instruction of the Father. If they would just see the work of the Lord, that they would be convinced as to Jesus' authority, and they would place Him as Lord and Master of their own life. So we see the first proof of Jesus' authority in verses 19 through 24, 23, excuse me. But then notice the second proof. Perhaps this is even more shocking to the Jews in the first century. Notice verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Jesus has authority to break the Sabbath rules because his authority is from the Father. He is of the sameness of the Father and is also seen in salvation. Proof number two is in salvation. We fail to understand and to grasp the magnitude of verse 24 so often because we are so used to hearing John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But if you were a Jew in the first century sitting there beside the pool of Bethesda or the temple and they, they heard this message, they would be completely shocked. Why? How are the Jews convinced that they attain eternal life? How are they convinced that they make their way justified before God? They think because they're a child of Abraham, because they have been circumcised, because their father was Abraham, because of the Abrahamic covenant, that the blessings and promises of God has been granted to them, and therefore because of their race, because of who their great-great-great-grandfather was, that they are justified before God. But then here comes a guy named Jesus, and he basically says that that doesn't save you in the slightest, that gives you blessings, but that does not save you. And here's this Jesus guy who breaks two Sabbath rules that they have, and then he claims to be equal to God, he claims to be of the sameness with God the Father, and then all of a sudden he claims that salvation itself is not acquired by your race or by who your father was or by the good deeds that you do, but salvation is by hearing and believing his message. So you see proof number one, proof number two, and then notice proof number three for Jesus' authority in verses 25 through 29 and 30. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. If you have a pen, circle that phrase, because he is the son of man. That has huge theological implications. Verse 28, do not marvel at this. (laughs) It's easy for him to say, right? But if they would just see who he really was, they wouldn't really marvel. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. I do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is Jesus' authority to break the Sabbath? It is seen in the sameness with the Father, it is seen in salvation, and it is seen in subsequent judgment. 
Proof number three, if you have your notes, is subsequent judgment. Jesus' authority comes because he will be the judge of the living and the dead. But how does Jesus justify that he is the one that brings judgment? If you notice in verse 27, as I told you to circle it, it says that he is the son of man. Now what is that referring to? It's referring to Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. As mentioned also in John chapter 3, the son of man as was understood by the Jews in this culture, the son of man is, a, is basically a divine person that God has appointed uh, as king and, uh, and ruler over all dominions and kingdoms that in the son of man himself he will judge over all the world. So I want you to think about, real quick, all of the theological implications. Now, I'm just going to be really transparent for just a second. I think I could probably spend 20 weeks just in this passage alone. But think about all of the truths that he is unfolding here before the Jews. Not only is he the healer of this man, but he has the right to break their rules. That he is equal to God. That he is of the sameness of God. That he is the Son of God. That he is the way of salvation. That he is the Son of Man. The one to judge in the future. No wonder the Jews want to kill this man. No wonder they persecute him. But in reality, if they would just see Jesus for who he truly was, if they would just see his authority that has been given to him by God the Father, that they would no longer persecute him, but they would fall down before him in worship and honor. Let me ask you the question. Who is on the throne of your life? Who is in control of your life? Is it Jesus or is it self? Is it the opinions of other people? Or is it Jesus who deserves it all the more? My third and final point kind of pieces all of this together. If you have your notes, it is this. To overcome blinding self-righteousness and recognize Jesus' authority, proven in his sameness, in salvation, and in subsequent judgment. Friends, today I hope that we look at our lives, that we see it for what it truly is, that we would not be like the Jews, that we have erected a wall of self-righteous rules and regulations and preferences that we peer over only when people approach the walls of breaking our rules, that we would... Sometimes in life that we are so consumed with preferences or we're so consumed with ourselves that we fail to see the work of God, that we fail to participate in His will, that we fail to see the miracles that He is doing in our world. I find it amazing that these Jews here are more consumed with Jesus breaking their Sabbath rules than they are with rejoicing with this man that has been sitting there hopeless beside the pool of Bethesda for 38 years that they would chastise this man, that they would find it more of a priority rather to love this man than, they, than their Sabbath rules that have been broken. And the reality, the irony is, do you think this man cares at all, after 38 years of sitting at the pool, he cares at all that he broke their Sabbath rules? But then they turn their aim, their crosshairs from this man to this man named Jesus, who appears just to be a good teacher and miracle worker on the surface, and then they peer to him and they persecute and they kill him for breaking their 39 laws on the Sabbath. 
Friends, if we are not careful, we can be just like them. They were so consumed with their schedules, so consumed with their preferences, so consumed with rules and the way we do things, the way we like it, that we completely miss the work of God. So then the question must be this morning, and the question that I would have for you, I've asked you already, is the only question that I have really to ask, is who is on the throne of your life? Who is on the throne of your life? Who is the authority? Are we more concerned with what he says or what this person says? Are we more consumed with what he does or what we wish? Perhaps the most important question that you can ask yourself every day is that who is on the throne? Who is in authority over my life? Because just like them, we have a choice that we can make every day that we can either be consumed with our rules and what we wish to do or we can actually just see the truth that Jesus Christ has died for my sin, that if I believe in him, that I shall be saved. But that not only, but now I am not my own, but now I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And really that I am called to suffer, that I am called to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him to wherever he leads me. That he is now my authority, that he is now my leader in the midst of all of the circumstances of life. Who is the authority in your life? Whom do you follow? Because I think if, if we really saw Jesus every day for who he truly was, then I think it would affect three areas. It would affect our worship. That beyond the walls here at Calvary Bible Church, that if we truly understood, if we truly had Jesus on the throne, if we truly understand His identity as God, but also as Savior and the Son of Man, the one who is coming to judge, that we would fall on our face in worship. This morning, just in, in reference, I, I read Revelation chapter 4 and 5, because they realize once and for all that Jesus is the King and ruler over the universe. And what do they say to Him? And what do they say before all? That worthy is He. I believe if we truly understand who Jesus was, if we truly had Him on the throne of our lives, then that would affect our worship. It would also affect our following. That we, if we truly received Jesus, we would deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow Him. That we would follow Him to whatever degrees He would have us. We would follow Him in the midst of all the persecution that we will face. And then number three... It would affect if we believe in him. If we truly understand the gospel, we would believe in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. My point today is to overcome blinding self-righteousness, the fortresses that we build up to make ourselves feel better, to recognize and to place Jesus as the authority of our life, and to see that he has proven his authority through his sameness with the Father, through salvation, through subsequent judgment. If you have if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he presents to you the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, that if you believe in him, that you shall be saved. I think there is a, a misnomer in our culture and in all cultures that we are good people, that naturally speaking, we are good people, but that is not the truth. 
what does it say in Romans chapter 3? That there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we are sinners, that we are imperfect people. And because of that, our relationship with God has been broken. And some, something had to happen in order to restore us to a right relationship with the Lord. And that's why Jesus Christ had to die. And because of his payment for my sin, God the Father passed over my sins previously, currently, and forever committed. That if I believe in Jesus Christ by faith, that I will have eternal life. That I will pass out of the judgment of death and into the resurrection of life. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, if you never trusted him as your Savior, then I would encourage you to do so. What does the scripture say? For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not ourselves is a gift to God, not by things we do so that we cannot boast. Friends, I pray that we would see the fortresses in our lives that we're building. I pray that we would see on a daily basis who is on the throne of our life because Jesus deserves to be our Lord and our Master and he deserves us to follow to wherever road he chooses. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, I, I feel uh, unworthy. Um, I, I'm not sure that I truly understand and, and grasp the magnitude of John chapter 5. Lord, I, I see so many details and so many truths and so many ways that you have proven your authority, that, uh, that you are equal to God. Lord, I, I, I feel uh, inadequate so, in so many ways to present your truth here this morning. And Lord, I just pray for, the, for, for those that are here this morning, but those who are tuning online, that we would not be like the Jews, that we would not be so consumed with ourselves, that we would basically persecute you and murder you in our lives, but Lord, that we would rather see reality, see the authority that you have in our lives, see that you are Savior, that you are Lord, that you are the Son of God, that you are the Son of Man, that we would submit to you, and that we would follow you to whatever end you would call us. Lord, I pray that we would ask ourselves on a daily basis that who is on the throne? Who is in charge? Whose authority am I living under? Lord, that is the question that I hope that we ask today, because Lord, I pray that we would recognize your authority in our life, that you are Lord and Master of our lives as Christians. Lord, I uh, I thank you for all of my friends. I thank you for my church family. Lord, thank you that we can love one another. I pray that even after the service itself, that we would be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, Lord, that we would have relationships with one another, that we would not hide behind our preferences and walls, but that we would love people. Lord, I just thank you for those that are tuning in online. I, I pray for them, that you would continue to protect them, continue to encourage them, continue to strengthen them. Lord, I pray that we as a body would continue to love people, even at a distance. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.